Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Previously on Booby Trap. He had this cassette player. Um, he wore these thick rimmed glasses, oversized glasses. The only person I can think of that you know he reminds me of, it would be like a cross between Charles Nelson Riley and Elton John. We became fast friends. Bob Lane was really into cars and motorcycles. Tony Simmons, he happened to be really good friends with Bob Lane. And Bob Lane says, well, Mike's going to find out anyway. And he's like, no, but he says he tape recorded the whole thing. Richie getting killed. I was asked to meet with Chuck in the park one day. And this was all arranged by Tony Simmons. And um, I wound up meeting Chuck. The closing bell at the New York Stock Exchange, the main index, down over 7%. Shock and panic evident on the faces of those on the trading floor. This is an extraordinary period for America's economy. Over the past few weeks, many Americans have felt anxiety about their finances and their future. We are in the midst of a serious financial crisis. You are taking a position against the very security that you are selling, and you are not troubled. Senator, as I, again... And you want people to trust you. Senator, I think people. Why would trust people? Us. I won't trust you. In 2008, after years of irresponsible business practices by subprime mortgage lenders, the free market had finally failed. And America came within inches of a total economic collapse. It was at this time that Mike Fragameni was busy getting ready to return to his old neighborhood in North Miami to care for his ailing mom. He hadn't been back since his father's death in 1996. And during his 11-year absence, his mother, who was an alcoholic and chain smoker, had grown weak. And eventually, after getting hit by a car, was in need of his assistance. While running errands one day around North Miami Beach, Mike found himself at Southern Memorial Park. That's the cemetery where Richie's remains are buried. He and his friend decided to stop and visit the grave. And it was at this point that Mike made a commitment to himself that no matter what, he would tell the story, the true story 
of the circumstances and the repercussions surrounding Ritchie's death. When he returned a year later to conduct research for the book, he decided to track down his old friend, Tony Simmons. Welcome to Season 1 of the Miami Chronicles Booby Trap, Episode 3. So what was it like meeting Tony again after all those years? What was it like, 2008 or 2009? No, I didn't actually see him. But um, at the time, um, Facebook was kind of new still. This is 2009. And um, it hadn't occurred to me that I could find old friends using this uh, Facebook thing. Yeah. And so I did that and I started looking for you know some of the people who I thought would be important to the story. Um, I couldn't find Tony. I, I couldn't find him on Facebook. And um, I got this idea. I realized that Tony, like I said before in the last episode, he had two brothers. One of them was had a pretty common name. But I remembered that his older brother's name was Carrie. K-E-R-R-Y. And so I ran a search for Carrie Simmons and boom, I got a hit. Hmm. And the address matched, and and I was like, okay. And there was a phone. I think I used like the, the white pages thing or something. And um, and I called him, and uh, I got his answering machine, and it was him because these guys. I mean, I know I have a weird sounding voice, but I mean, the Simmons has had even weirder sounding voices. Okay. Um, their their family came from Chicago. I mean, it's just very very unique. So um. Anyway, I heard Carrie's voice and it was like, wow, like that's him. And so I left a message. I said, hey, I was really good friends with your younger brother. Blah, blah, blah. I didn't expect anything. Within like a few hours, I got a phone call. I, I left my cell phone number on his machine or whatever, and his voicemail. And, and it was Tony. And um, Carrie had passed my information on and, and Tony was calling me. And I was like, wow, okay, this is great, you know. So we started talking and... You know, after not talking to the guy for easily 20 years. Um, so we had a lot of catching up to do. And I was genuinely interested in catching up. He's my friend, you know. So um, we talked for a good 20, 30 minutes just getting caught up. He didn't know I had kids. He didn't know I had a record deal, you know, and all this stuff that happened to me. And I didn't know that he got married and he started a business and recently just divorced with his wife and all this other. So... You know, it was a lot of stuff to, to talk about. And then the whole time in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, like, how am I going to broach this issue of Richie? Because, you know, like, I don't want him to think that the only reason why I got in touch with him was because I just wanted to ask him questions for the book, you know, as part of the research that I was doing. And, uh, but to be honest, that really was the main reason. I didn't have anything in common anymore, really. Uh, but, but, you know, he's still an old friend and we have this history together. And so, so yeah, eventually after talking for about 30, 40 minutes, um, I just said, hey, so um, I'm doing some research. I'm thinking about writing a book about Richie. And he was like, what? And, you know, the whole conversation just like turned on a dime. It just... It went from him, you know, being happy to hear from me and we were just chatting to he just got really quiet and kind of defensive. And he was just like, why would you want to do that? Or 
I said, look, I remember all that stuff still. You know, I haven't forgotten it. And he just, I could sense that he was getting nervous already. Mm. And, um, but, uh, you know, he, he didn't hang up on me and he didn't, you know, he hung in there and I gave him some, you know, just like really easy questions, soft, softball questions, you know. Such as what? Just like, um, tell me about what you remember, you know, you and Richie were best friends. And he's like, of course we were like, he, like all that stuff he remembered perfectly fine, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But as we got closer and closer to talking about the shooting and, you know, that the time around that, like, it's funny how he could remember stuff from when he was younger but like all of a sudden now he gets amnesia when it's when it gets around this the time of the shooting is our selective memory kind of thing um so yeah i just said you know well what do you remember about it and he you know he gave me sort of like the stock kind of version of what happened and the first sort of touchy thing was when i mentioned the cassette yeah when i said do you remember the cassette and he's like what like and he kind of acted like he didn't remember it um, and then I had to remind him, I said, remember when you used to walk around with that cassette player and you'd record it? He's like, yeah, yeah, no, I remember that. And he's like, uh, what cassette with Richie? Like, and, and then I had to remind him of the, the night that we went to Bob Lane's and, and he basically just said, I don't remember that. He just said flat out that he had no, no memory of that at all. And I told him straight up, I just said, look, Tony, I gotta be honest with you, um, that night that you and I went to Bob Lane's and he told me that you had tape recorded Richie dying. That's the reason why this story has stayed with me all these years. You know, it's haunted me in a sense. And, you know, slowly he started, you know, because remember, like I said, Tony lied a lot. And even though we were getting caught up, of course, we're both middle-aged men now or approaching being middle-aged men. You know, I wasn't sure if the guy was still lying, if he was anything like he was when he was a kid. You know, for all I know, all the stories that he told me about being married and maybe all that was a lie. I didn't know. So, you know, I kind of have to take everything with a grain of salt with this guy. So he starts, you know, adding little bits and pieces as if like his memory is starting to open up a hmm. little bit. So basically we get into some of these details about the shooting. But I would say for the most part, at least in that initial conversation, we hung up the phone with him basically more or less claiming that he didn't really remember a lot about it. And that was it. Tony Simmons wasn't the only person Mike tried tracking down back in 2009. He also wanted to find Jerry Burkowski, the supposed accomplice who had helped Richie break into Chuck Falco's house on that ill-fated night in 1979. But due to a spelling error, he was unable to find him. It wouldn't be until later, with the help of another friend, that he would finally locate him. Mike told me about a Saturday afternoon outing that he had had with Jerry that left him feeling somewhat puzzled and uneasy. So tell me about Jerry Brukowski. Um, I had a class with him. I think it was in fifth grade or sixth grade. But he was, he was kind of a troubled kid. I mean, he wasn't unfriendly. And um, he, he had a tendency to get into fights and stuff. And I do remember him, like, getting suspended for a while probably because of a fight right um and then we graduated from elementary school we all went to thomas jefferson we were in seventh grade and um i don't think i really had many classes with jerry uh in seventh and eighth grade but i would see him around you know he was in the hallways and you know we had mutual friends and things like that 
So that's why I was really surprised one day when he came over to my house to mm-hmm. uh, hang out with me. It was Saturday afternoon, and I just thought that was odd because we weren't that good of friends. You know, it's it's not like if you see someone at school in the middle of the week and they say like, hey, Mike, you want to hang out this weekend? And there's sort of, you know, there's a plan to do it. That would have been fine. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that's not what happened. Like, he just randomly came over my house. Like, he knew where I lived. And he came over my house. And he just said, hey, what are you doing? You want to do something? And I was like, sure. Like, I, I think I was watching TV. It was, a, I think it had been raining. And then it stopped raining. And the sun came out. And you know, he just happened to catch me at that moment where it would have been hard for me to say no. Like, it would, it would have been kind of rude. So, um, there were two different arcades in my neighborhood. And where the interchange is, that's called Cloverleaf. That's like the Cloverleaf part of the neighborhood. And that's where the miniature golf was. Mm-hmm. So um, that was our main arcade. You know, that was that, that arcade had every single game you could ever want. You know, like all of the, the cool games of the time. But there was this competing arcade uh, that had just opened up over by the Winn-Dixie grocery. And so that's where Jerry wanted to go. And so I went with him to this arcade. And and it was much smaller, and they didn't really have that many good games. They had some pinball machines and, you know, probably Space Invaders and Galaga and all that stuff. But um, anyway, so we were hanging out there, and I only had a couple bucks, so I pretty much went through my quarters pretty quickly. And uh, at one point, I think he was out of money too. At one point, his mom uh, came by the arcade he went outside and talked to her and then she gave him some more money. And it, it was one of those weird things where like, I really wanted to leave because I was bored. But since we were technically hanging out, yeah, I felt like it, once again, it probably would have been rude to leave. But really, it just, the whole thing just wound up me just watching him play games. Like he didn't give me any money. He's <laughs> so like, hey, Mike, here's a dollar for you since we're hanging out. Like uh-huh. he just, his mom gave him like five bucks and he went through the five bucks pretty quickly. And I just had to sit, stand there and watch him play games. God, yeah. what a jerk. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. It wasn't, it wasn't the funnest day. And, and on top of that, it was awkward because like I said, I didn't know the guy that well. So then I was ready to cut out, you know, we were leaving the arcade and we were walking back towards my house and I was going to turn off and go home and and he he got kind of offended you know because i guess i was i was sensing that you know that that if i had cut out early he would have felt like i was kind of ditching him or something so when we got close to my street i said hey man so i'm gonna take off now and then he says um he goes what's the problem mike and he, he got a little bit confrontational it was a little scary i mean like you know what i mean like he was he's definitely he had this nature that he could be kind of a bully i had watched him get into all kinds of fights you know Mm -hmm. um so i knew that he was you know he would fight at the drop of a hat um not that he was going to fight me or anything but i just felt like you were intimidated a little yeah he's a little a little intimidated and a little bit confrontational and i really didn't feel like going there with the guy i didn't feel like it was even worth you know it actually was like okay fine what what do you want to do and we went to the oak grove park um, Oak Grove Park is right next to our old elementary school, which was Oak Grove Elementary. That whole area at one time was this huge wilderness called Fluger's. Fluger was this guy who owned all that land um, back, I, I guess, in the 30s, 40s, 50s. He was a taxidermy. So he used to stuff, you know, dead animals. Great. And um, yeah, and it's really weird because we always thought that the place was haunted, you know, yeah. because it was this huge plot of land, like right in our neighborhood. Um, and there were trails in there and like there were like hippies.
movies and stuff like back when I was a little kid like in the late 60s and early 70s there'd be like these long hair freaky guys like in there and stuff and um, biker gangs you know and I remember once I made the mistake of cutting through there I was I was like in third grade so I was like eight years old and I just decided to cut through Pflugers instead of just walking on the sidewalk around it and I went down this trail and down this little um, embankment sort of thing so I couldn't see until I got sort of down it, but there were these two really scary looking like Charles Manson guys. And, and yeah, they had like these they had like motorcycles and they they like looked at me and I was like, oh shit. And I like because I was a little kid, you know. And um I just started running. You know, I didn't even ask yeah. questions. I just, they started laughing. I could hear them laughing behind me, like, yeah, you run, little kid, you know, or something like that. Um, so they knew they were scary looking guys. You know, this is the neighborhood I grew up in, which, like I said before, for all intents and purposes, was a very safe neighborhood. But under the surface, man, there was some crazy people, you know, in that area. Darkness, yeah. Yeah. So by now, I'm, I'm walking with Jerry. And at this point, as usual, all we wanted to do was get stoned. Neither one of us had pot. And we were hoping that we'd run into someone in the park and, you know, get to smoke a joint or something. But we didn't find anyone. So we just kind of meandered around. And then he says, oh... I remember my mom has some vodka and I'm thinking like, I don't, you know, I don't want to drink. It's like the middle of the afternoon. Like, what do I want? You know? So he says, come with me. So I go to his house and um, we go into his apartment and it's, it's, it's a mess in there. I mean, it just looked horrible. You know, there was just trash on the floor and the place was just a mess. And, you know, just, you could just see right away that this is kind of a troubled family. Um, And he pulls the couch out a little and behind the couch, there's this bottle of vodka And there's pretty much just enough for one little swig. It's not even a shot. Like, I would say it was like half a shot. Just like that little backwash, you know, it's like, you know, in the, like if you hold the bottle up and you, and you tilt it sideways, it fills up that little corner in the bottom. Yeah. That's basically what he, what he was all excited about. And he guzzles that thing down and he's like, and he didn't even offer me it, like not that I would want any. But, and I'm sitting there thinking like, what, what am I doing with this guy? Like, why am I here? And that was the thing that was most confusing. I couldn't figure out what it was we were doing. Because we weren't really having a good time. We didn't know each other well enough to be comfortable with each other. And I started getting the feeling like he was keeping me with him because he was told that he had to or something. Yeah, trying to distract you somehow? Yeah, like yeah. He was. I really started to get the feeling that his task that day was to keep me occupied for a certain amount of time. And I couldn't figure out why. I had no clue. I'm just telling you how it felt Mm -hmm. and just using my senses. And finally, I just really had to put my foot down and run the risk of him, like, you know, confronting me or, you know, maybe even like bullying me or something. But I was so freaking bored at this point that I just had to put my foot down and say, look, I'm leaving. And surprisingly, he was like, yeah, okay, I'll see you later, which was also odd. And which sort of confirmed my belief that, okay, you know, maybe he was only supposed to hang out with me from like one to four or something. And now it's after four. Even at this point, 
and without knowing anything about what would be revealed later, Mike had a strong suspicion that he was being played, or more specifically, used as a decoy. It was obvious that Jerry didn't want to hang out with him. He acted bored and disinterested the whole time. It was as if he had an ulterior motive. Though this seems like a minute detail now, keep this in mind, because it'll play an important part later on in our story. We'll be right back. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So one night we were, as usual, we were hanging out. Now this is, once again, this is the spring of 1979. Mm -hmm. Tony has been hanging out more with Richie than he had the previous two years. Okay. So he, he and I were really good friends, you know, for most of the time between 1977 up through 1979. But there was a little phase there at the beginning of 1979, like the first six months of 79, where he started hanging out with Richie again. He hadn't really been hanging out with Richie much. So I wasn't seeing Tony as often as I had been before. Um, But when I did see him, it was usually the same old story. It was because he didn't have any pot and I didn't have any pot. And we were looking for someone who had pot. And so, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so one day he says, you know, I know a place where we could get some pot, you know, now, because of Tony's lying, you always had to take the stuff with a grain of salt. And I called bullshit on him. I just said, okay, well, if you know some guy who has pot, like, let's go. And he says, oh, well, it's kind of far away. It's a little bit of a walk. I said, I'm fine. Like, let's do it. And I said, where is it? And he says, it's at the Trade Winds. Now, the Trade Winds, it's this complex of condos that were built in the late 60s, early 70s. And, uh, you know, very typical... South Florida, like when one thinks of South Florida, the first thing you usually think of are these condos. And um, Okay. It's a high rise? Yeah. I mean, it was, they weren't super, super tall, but I would say like, you know, maybe 12 stories or something like that, maybe 14 stories or, you know. Do you remember the beginning of the Bob Newhart show? Yeah. Okay. Like, do you remember the building he lived in? Yeah. In Chicago? That's what this building looked like. He was, you know, I think in the Bob Newhart show, he's supposed to be like on the 12th floor or something. Okay. But there were a few of these. Like I said, it was a complex. So um, he was saying there was this guy there who had pot and we could get stoned. And he said, you know, he also had HBO, which at the time was like HBO. <laughs> yeah, you know? right. I mean, it was, this is 1979. This is back when HBO really was just this little box that you would put on your TV and, and it literally was a cable that just, would, you know, the guy would like drill a hole through your wall, and, you know, put yeah. the cable through and then like hook it up to this little box and you'd get one channel and it was HBO and you would get like 
R-rated movies, you know, we wouldn't have to, you know, get permission, right. uh, you know, to, you know, you know, who naked ladies or something, you know, whatever. So, you know, just, just that alone, I was like, yeah, let's go to this guy's place, you know, see what movies are on tonight, you know. So we went and, you know, he wasn't bullshitting. I mean, when we got there, um, the guy that he was talking about was like in his mid 50s. All right. He was uh, sort of acted like, talked like he was connected with the mafia. Um, he definitely dressed like, you know, a character from a Martin Scorsese film, mm-hmm. um, a la, you know, Mean Streets or something like that, you know. And uh, he wore these big glasses like all these uh, mobster guys do. Yeah. Once again, oversized glasses. And uh, he seemed like a nice guy, but he was, you could tell right away that he's, he's kind of shady. I mean, he just... And I instantly, when we walked in, I just, I did not feel comfortable. Like, I felt like, oh man, what has Tony gotten me into? Mike knew that Tony, well, Tony had secrets. And it was always hard to tell when he was being honest. Usually, it was some kind of an exaggerated half-truth or an elaborate embellishment. Remember what his mom said before, that with Tony, you have to be able to read the signs. And Mike was sure that this was just another one of his fabrications. But in this case, he was actually telling the truth. And Mike was wondering just what he had gotten himself into. But I'm in there now and I'm thinking to myself, man, wh- wh- what am I doing here? You know, like this is this is not my scene. You know, this is, you know, I'm not comfortable with this. Um, but the guy, you know, he seems like he's a good host. Um, you know, he's he asked us if we wanted anything to drink. And I just felt like saying, no, we're just here to get stoned. Like, do you have any pot? But I, you know, that would have been rude. And he says, you guys want to watch a movie? And sure enough, he did have HBO and all of that stuff. <laughs> so um, we're sitting on his couch, you know, and in this 12th floor condo you know with a really nice view and uh but there's another guy there too now this guy was uh younger he was probably around 20 and he was kind of a hip looking dude like i mean for the time you know he had like sort of shoulder length hair like long hair blonde um you could tell the guy like worked out he was one of these guys that had like you know perfect posture you know yeah <laughs> like i always had that slouch you know the guitar slouch the slouch yeah <laughs> but this guy you know obviously he you know he was fit um and uh the only way i could describe it is you got this 55 year old wannabe gangster or has been gangster and that this young guy is like his sidekick you know mm-hmm. maybe he's his enforcer he's his muscle Right. Honestly, that's what it looked like, you know, Um, and the muscle guy didn't talk much, which is what you'd expect. You know, it was so stereotypical Um, and we're hanging out and I'm not sure why the hell I'm here. (laughs) To be honest with you, I'm looking at Tony like, are you going to ask this guy for pot or what? Like, come on, because it was still early enough to where Tony and I could still salvage the evening like it was only like nine. And so I didn't want to sit there all night with these weird guys, you know, <laughs> um, but there definitely seemed to be an agenda. And I couldn't figure out what the agenda was. At one point, uh, he, there was a movie on and he said something like, oh, you know, enjoy the movie. And then he leaves the 55 year old gangster guy. He goes into his bedroom and um, his sidekick goes in there with him. Like for 20 minutes, they're just 
They just remove themselves. They leave me and Tony in this room. They don't hmm. even know me. They, they, it's, it's the strangest thing, you know, which gave me the impression that, okay, Tony must really know this guy well enough to, to he trusts Tony and therefore he trusts me because I'm Tony's friend. And I said to Tony, now that these guys are out of there, I said, hey, come on, we got to get, he said, be cool, man. Like, just be cool. Like, and I was like, yeah, but I mean, we're only here to get pot. I don't want to hang out here and stuff. And so finally these guys come out and I mean, honestly, I didn't know what they were doing in there, but if I had to guess, I would say they were having sex. Hmm. And once again, I didn't see it, but that's just my hunch, you know. Um, and so now he comes out, the gangster dude, and he now comes up to me and he says, you know, well, Tony tells me that you're a pretty trustworthy guy or something like that, that I had like good morals and I was like someone who could be trusted. Right. And I just said, yeah, you know, I guess. And um, he says, well, I've got I got a proposition for you. And I, I said, okay. And he says, well, you know, I've, I've come into possession of some pills and I, I don't want them. I would like to get rid of them and make some money in the process. He says, would you be interested in selling these for me? Now my whole mind shifts because now I realize that I'm in the midst of a business transaction, you know, that now I have an opportunity to make some money. And plus the fact that he prefaced the whole thing by saying that he thought highly of me. Like I, you know, Tony had vouched for me in such a way. And so, um, so he says, you know, would you be willing to sell these pills for me? It turns out these are Placidils. Okay. Um, uh, what's that? A Placidil is like a form of barbiturate. Well, it's like, you know, basically if you have insomnia, you take one and they, they help you go to sleep. I don't know what the active chemical is, but, and he just said, are, are you interested in selling them? And like an idiot, I said, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize what, you know, what I was getting myself into, but I just said, sure. So um, he tells me, you know, before we, Tony and I leave that, uh, you know, I owe him 150 bucks in two weeks. And if I don't pay him, you know, he's he's got a little bit threatening, like he's, you know, he's tapping into his inner gangster, you know, and he's basically saying, you know, if, if I didn't have the money, you know, bad things could happen to me or something, you know. <laughs> okay. So I'm sitting here thinking, like, I could probably sell these for three bucks each. Um, I think Quaaludes were five bucks at the time. And so I could undercut all the guys who were selling Quaaludes at the beach, you know, but, um, but yeah, when I got to the beach, I I actually didn't know what these things were. I had never seen them. And it was so funny. Like, this is just a good example of the times I get to the beach. I got a hundred of these things in my pocket. Right. And the people I'm trying to sell them to, they know more about these things than I do. And I said, I was just like, Hey, you want to buy a Placidil for three bucks? And he's like, um, greens or reds. And I'm just like, shit, you know, I didn't even know there were green. Like, and so it was like, um, they're the red ones. Like, oh yeah, huh, red ones. No, not really. Not for three bucks. And I'm like, shit. So now I'm starting to think like I got ripped off. Like, what have I gotten myself into? Like, if I can't sell these things for a dollar 50 each, you know, I'm going to owe this guy money. And, um, I did sell enough of those things that I had the money to give him. Oh, right? so, okay. You wouldn't get your legs broken then. Right. Yeah. So, okay. so I, I wound up selling them for two bucks each. I think that was the compromise. So I didn't make that much money. Mm-hmm. Um, probably made like 40 bucks, you know, which still was a lot of money in those days. The important thing is I made the 150 that I gave him, you know, so I, I kept my end of the bargain. 
And I remember he comes, it's like two weeks to the day, exactly when he said he was going to be there. I told him to meet me on the corner of 4th Avenue and 160th Street, you know, which is right near where I live um, on a Saturday at three or whatever. And sure enough, he was there, you know, right on time <laughs> with his muscle guy in the, in the passenger seat. Um, they pull up. It's just so stereotypical. They pull up in a Cadillac. Like, of course, it's got to be a Cadillac. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and he tell, he's asked me to get into the car, you know, which I didn't want to do, but I figured I had to. So I get into the back seat and I hand him the money and he was impressed. Like he was, you know, he basically said, if you're interested, I've got more work for you and stuff like that. And, and I said, I didn't want to work with the guy anymore. So I think I made up an excuse. Like, I think I just said, oh, well, I almost got caught this time. So, um. I don't know if I can do it again or something. You know, I just I tapped into the fact that I was actually only 14 and kind of just yeah. reminded him that, like, you know, um, I could get in trouble. You know, I could get grounded or something, which is not true. I never got grounded. But and I and I didn't almost get caught. But I just I didn't have a good feeling about these guys. You know, I just felt like if I got in too deep with them, um, I could I could wind up getting into some serious trouble. You know, I, I felt like I dodged a bullet, to be honest with you. But it, it definitely gave me some insight into this other side of Tony Simmons, this stuff that he kept secret. And like I said before, I don't have any proof that he was doing anything with these guys. For all I know, he was just hanging out with them, you know, as a kid. And like I've already said, I don't care. Like it didn't matter to me what he did with his friends. But what did matter to me was when he manipulated me, he got me into these sticky situations. Mm-hmm. So because of that incident, with the selling the Placidils. A few days later, Tony basically said to me that Chuck Falco found out that I had been selling the Placidils at Hallover and he wanted to know if I was interested in selling pot for him. So because of the fact that I had successfully sold these Placidils, I had earned the the honor to be in the presence of the great Chuck Falco, who was like the coolest guy in the neighborhood, you know, because he had pot and he would smoke pot with kids. And, you know, he was like 31 and he was this really cool dude. And and to find out from Tony that Chuck knew who I was and, and actually wanted to meet with me because he was looking for someone to sell some pot for him at Hallover. So he sets up a meeting on a Saturday afternoon at Oak Grove Park. And so I go into the park and um, Tony's with me and I sit down at one of the park benches and he's sitting there. And um, I'm super friendly with the guy, you know, because I just figured, you know, he thought highly of me. Um, kind of similar to the way that the wannabe gangster guy was saying really good things about me. Like Tony had told him really good things about me. Um, My reputation preceded me kind of thing. So I figured the same thing was going to happen with Chuck. I was going to sit there and Chuck was going to say, yeah, I heard really good things about you. And so, you know, my initial sort of introduction to him was I was like, hey, how are you doing? Like I shook his hand and I was, and I probably said something to the effect of, you know, oh, like I've heard a lot about you kind of thing. And um, man, from the very beginning, he just, he just had a vibe. And it was not good. He had this cold stare and these dark eyes. And um, yeah, he was a scary dude. I mean, that's all I can say. 
I'd been around some scary guys in my life at that point, um, like friends of my father who had fought in World War II. And this guy, he was right up there with those guys. Like I said before, he was a Vietnam vet. He had been there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just, it was, it just caught me by surprise. I, I wasn't expecting that at all. Like I wasn't even remotely in that headspace. And he's not saying much. He's just looking at me. And then when he does talk, he starts asking me personal questions. Like, you know, do I know where he lives? I said, no, I don't know where you live. And he's like, really? And then he's as if he doesn't believe me. He thinks I'm lying. And I'm like, no, I I really don't know where you live. I've never been to your house. And so why would I know where you live? He says, oh, come on, everyone knows where I live. Um, he says, you're friends with Richie, right? And I said, well, I've known him, yeah, for, I said, you know, I know Tony. You know, he just starts prying. He's asking me questions that have nothing to do with me selling pot for him. So I'm just not digging this, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm going to get up any minute and just walk away. But then he really starts, like, laying it on thick. He starts saying stuff like, you know, do you break into people's houses? I said, no. He said, oh. He goes, so you don't steal. You don't steal things from people. I said, no. I said, if I stole stuff, then no one would trust me. And he sort of didn't even want to hear that. He just kind of interrupted me. And he just sort of grilling me on, you know, breaking into people's houses. He says, you know, selling drugs is illegal, right? He says, you know, you could be arrested for that. He goes, you know what you're doing is wrong. And I'm thinking like, wait, this guy wants me to sell pot for him. And he's like, this isn't, I don't know, you know, dude, like this isn't the right approach, you know? So, so he was very, uh, very intimidating uh, to say the least. So much to the point to where I felt like I was being scolded. I, I couldn't even look him in the eye anymore. I felt like it was a teacher and the teacher was scolding me. And so I was doing that thing where like you look down and you just kind of look at your hands and you just kind of like you're just avoiding eye contact. Mm-hmm. And, and like my heart started beating and I was definitely getting nervous. I felt like, oh, shit, now I'm busted. Like now this guy's going to call my house. He's going to tell my parents. At, at one point, he pulled out some brass knuckles and he put them on his hand. And he said something to the effect of, you know, if I find out that you've been stealing from me, uh, I'm going to find you. He goes, I know where you live. He says, you know, you won't be able to sleep at night and stuff like that. It was pretty threatening stuff. Then he takes out a knife. You know, it's obviously one of these hunting sort of military knives. And he lays it on the park bench on the table, like right in front of me. He takes the brass knuckles off and puts them in front. He's displaying these weapons. And he's telling me that, he says, you know, I'm going to find you. I know where you live. He said, he said something like, you know, you won't get a good night's sleep for, you know, un- until I let you or something, you know, which kind of gave me nightmares. Um, and, you mm-hmm. know, um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, I finally he just let me leave. I mean, that's that's the only way I could put it is that he let me leave. He was a very scary dude. That's all I can tell you. And, um, and you know, there's people who act that way and they might scare you. They might intimidate you, but you can kind of sense deep down inside that you might still stand a chance, you know, if you stood up to them. Yeah. 
that's not what Chuck's vibe was at all. I mean, you got to understand, there was no nothing in there. There was not one little smidgen that if this guy decided to just cut my throat, that he would do it at the drop of a hat. I mean, and that is a really scary thing. You know, most people don't meet people like that over the course of their lives. And when you do, you know, you remember it. And I'll never forget that meeting with him. And and I just didn't want to have anything to do with him. And I couldn't understand why the other kids thought he was cool because I didn't see anything from our meeting, you know. Now, yeah, maybe he did have another side. I'm sure he did because I've read, you know, I've read a lot about him now and I've done a lot of research. And obviously he had a nice side and the scouts liked him and all this other stuff. But what I'm saying is if you got on his bad side and if that bad side is all you saw, right? Oh my God, that's a scary bad side. You know, that's a side of a Vietnam vet who has been in war, you know, and he's not going to take any shit from a 14 year old kid. So, um, so yeah, a very scary uh, moment there. And um, when, when we left, Tony and I left, I really took out all my frustration on Tony. I, I really laid into him hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just like, how dare you do that? You know, because once again, like I told you with the wannabe gangster dude, I felt somewhat manipulated even though the outcome wasn't so bad. But now I really felt manipulated. I really felt like Tony had done something. There's, I couldn't figure out what the overarching thing was. That's the problem. I couldn't figure out what the motive was, but I couldn't help feeling like I was being manipulated. That like a trap was set for me to step into, you know, and I stepped into it because I trusted my friend. I trusted Tony. I, 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 I thought that what he was telling me was true, that like Chuck, for all intents and purposes, was a cool guy in the neighborhood and he was looking for someone to help sell some pot for him. And I was the guy because I had done well with the Placidils. That that's a believable, you know, that's a believable setup, you know. So, yeah, um, sure. So that's, uh, you know, I, I was really upset with Tony and I let him know it. And I told him, you know, don't ever, I don't want to go near that guy ever again. Don't even talk to me about that guy. And I asked him a few questions about Richie. You know, did Richie know? Did Richie know about this, this meeting? Um, Cause I think I remember Tony telling me that Richie was supposed to be there that day and that he wasn't. Yeah. And so I think I also had the impression that somehow Richie was in on this whole thing. And your intuition was really telling you something. Maybe at the time, I mean, I was thinking that they had just pranked me or something. But I, I couldn't really figure out, like, it just seemed like there was more at stake than just getting a laugh, you know? Because um, I don't think they would have manipulated Chuck like that, gotten him so angry at me. We'll be right back. One thing that Mike was able to do in 2010 was to obtain all of the surviving court records and police reports from the 1979 shooting. Once armed with these resources, Mike was able to confirm his long-standing assumptions about Tony and his complicity in the burglaries of Chuck Falco's house. Both Tony and Jerry had given sworn depositions regarding their involvement in the break-ins, as well as other aspects 
about Chuck Falco. So in 2009, 2010, I wind up in possession of the whole, all of the documents. Everything that Dade County had saved from the Richard Brush shooting is now in my possession, right? And, um, and I'm reading through this stuff, and everything now starts to make sense. All of the hunches and the assumptions that I had, um, some of them are a little out there. I had to just let those go. But others that were more reasonable, made more sense, were, were confirmed, you know. So talking about my meeting with Jerry that one Saturday afternoon and knowing that now armed with the knowledge that Jerry had been with Richie for at least a couple of those break-ins um, into Chuck's house, it's clear to me that they had to come up with a scapegoat. They knew that Chuck was getting hit to the fact that whoever was breaking into his house was probably one of the kids. I think Chuck pretty much knew that right away. The only, the only question was, which kid was it? And um, I think Chuck, part of him, he, he didn't want to believe that it was one of the scouts. He preferred to think that it wasn't that close to home and that it was probably just some other kid in the neighborhood. You know, and for some reason, maybe because Tony Simmons was mad at me about something that I didn't even know about. Um, remember, this is around the time that Tony starts hanging out with Richie again a little bit more than he had been. And somehow, some way, um, these guys got together and they decided that I was going to be the scapegoat, that I was going to be the guy who they were going to set me up so that Chuck thought that it was me who was breaking into his house. <laughs> Now everything starts to make sense because uh, that day I spent with Jerry, I don't know how it fits into their plans, but it was pretty obvious to me that day that I was hanging out with him that he was sort of just occupying me for it for an afternoon where they could say that I was somewhere where I wasn't because I was with Jerry. And then like maybe later on I would say, no, I was with Jerry that day. And then Jerry would say, no, you weren't. You see? It's like a false alibi because I would be relying solely on Jerry to confirm where I was that day. And then yeah. Jerry would just turn around and say, no, I wasn't with you. And then that would just leave me with no alibi. There would be no one to back me up. Right. So that actually makes sense. And if that was one of the days that maybe um, Richie and Tony were breaking into the house, they could have lined that up perfectly. So that actually makes sense to me now. And that's well, I mean, I, honestly, I can't think of any other reason why Jerry would want to hang out with me. Like I said, we really weren't that good of friends and we didn't have a good time. And then the other thing was um, the meeting with Chuck. That I guess that, once again, I think that was Richie's uh, idea. I thought it was Richie's idea. Um, I had a hunch. You know, I thought about it over the years and I it finally occurred to me that... Um, even when I was a kid, you know, like at the time and I was thinking about the whole chain of events, I was thinking like, I wonder if those guys are trying to set me up because why would Chuck be mad at me? Why would Chuck have all that anger towards me? Someone must have told him that it was me. I was the one who was breaking into his house. Right. And, you know, that's kind of a messed up thing to do, you know, because whoever was doing that knew that it wasn't me. So, um, like I said, I was being set up. I was the scapegoat. Fortunately for me, the opposite happened. I think Chuck realized right then and there that this is not the kid who's been breaking into my house. You know, and I think that's the reason why I never heard from Chuck again about that or anything. But he needed to meet me 
and see me face to face to know that like, no, this kid is not, you know. Mm -hmm. Back in 2010, when Mike was having discussions with Tony, he asked him about being set up by Richie and Jerry. Tony, who initially claimed he didn't remember the meeting with Chuck, finally confessed to his involvement in the scheme. I posed this question to him, and I mentioned the meeting with Chuck in the park. And Mm -hmm. I said, do you remember that day? And he, once again, he said he didn't remember it. He Mm -hmm. sort of denied the whole thing. And I said, don't you remember how mad I was at you after when we were walking home from the park and stuff? And he just kept on saying he didn't remember. And it was too long ago. And and he was really impressed that I remembered so much. He said, I can't believe you remember all of this stuff. And he's like, I don't remember any of it, you know, and stuff like that. So we hung up. The next day, he calls me and he says, I have to be honest with you. And I was like, yeah, go ahead. And he said, I remember everything. He said, I just, I thought I would never have to talk about that stuff ever again. He's like, you just kind of shocked me. And um, I was just being defensive. And I just basically figured the safe thing to say would be like, just basically say that I didn't remember anything. And and he didn't have to call me back. He didn't have to do any of that. He could have just denied it or said he didn't remember it. And, and there would have been nothing for me to do. Like, there's no way I could force it out of him. But he did call me back. And he did admit to all of these things. And we established a dialogue for which I am ever grateful because he didn't have to do that. And I told him, I'm going to follow the evidence. And I said, I'm, I'm, I don't want to make you out to be a bad guy. You know, I just want to know what happened. It's just a story that I think needs to be told. And so uh, he, he confirmed it. He said, yeah, we were setting you up, Mike. He said, you're right. He goes, you're right on the dot. You know, like, He goes, I can't believe that you figured it out after all these years and you remembered all that stuff. He said, but when you said that to me, he goes, it all came back to me. And he said it was Richie's idea to set me up and that he didn't say that he was mad at me or anything. He just said that he just went along with Richie's plan. They they were just trying to take the pressure off of themselves because they were feeling like Chuck was getting hip to them. And so it it was really just a diversion. It was just a, a temporary, you know, relief for them to just get Chuck's mind off of them, even if it was just for a week or two, you know. It bought them time. So, you know, and it was amazing after all of these years, you know, 30 years later, the two of us, you know, we're sitting here chatting on the phone and I felt like we're right back to like when we used to hang out on my porch and smoke a joint and, and he'd have his tape recorder and I'd, I'd be talking about some philosophical thing, you know, and, it, you know, we descended from Mars or something, you know, yeah. like you know, some, some crazy concept that I had, you know, about aliens and stuff. And he's just getting mad at me because he just wants to, you know, talk about surfacey stuff. And, and it all just came back, like as if we were just right back to where we were, except this time he was being honest with me. He was getting stuff off of his chest. He was confessing certain things to me. He had bottled it up for all of these years. Hmm. Tell me about the weird phone calls. Yeah. Around the same time, the weeks leading up to Richie's shooting, I was getting a series of um, crank calls. You know, like seemed like every Friday or Saturday night, I would get this really weird phone call. And I knew it was one of the kids in the neighborhood because he, he was disguising his voice. You know, it's like, like trying to make it sound like he was an old man or something. But you can tell when like a kid is, you know, especially when you're that young. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I remember in a couple of those crank calls that they kept on asking me about the keys. They kept on saying something like, well, where are the keys, Mike? You know, where are the keys? I, I need to find my keys. I've lost my keys or something like that. So once again, this is just one of those weird things where, you know, it's probably from the mind of Richard Brush that they were probably planting potential alibis or something in their story. This was around the same time that, you know, I met with Chuck. So there was something going on where they were, once again, they were trying to deflect and part of that whole scapegoating and setting me up. They wanted me to know about keys on a certain level you know, so if I was asked or something, but I, I never had any keys and I never, you know, all I had ever heard about keys was that Tony telling me one day that Richie had a set of keys and that he could get into Chuck's house whenever he wanted. The first time that Tony told me that Richie had a set of keys, right? There was this one weekend where um, Scouting Troop 85 was going on one of their infamous camping trips um, at T.Y. Park, which is in Broward County. And Tony, I guess, had been promised that he was going to be allowed to come this night, even though he wasn't a scout. Um, they were trying to set it up where he could come as like a, you know, a special guest or something, you know, or whatever. Um, he was really looking forward to it, to going on one of these camping trips, which, which I thought was kind of odd because Tony wasn't, he was like me. He, he wasn't an outdoorsman. He didn't like any of that shit. But he was really excited about going on this camping trip. And the Friday night came and, and he came over to my house and he was supposed to be with them. And, um, and I just remember, you know, him complaining about it, you know, and being so upset that, that he was left out. And I said, you know, why? Why didn't you go? Like, what's, what's the story? Like, what, what happened? He just said that he and Chuck had like a falling out. And that was the first time I ever heard anything about what was really going on with Scouting Troop 85. on booby trap i don't think that chuck gave richie the keys i think that they were stolen he basically implicates me into this you know when i had nothing to do with it he had told me earlier in the week that he was going to be going on a camping trip with richie chuck brings quaaludes he brings vodka he brings pot sometimes he brings coke he goes these camping trips that richie goes on these are just an excuse to just get wasted for the whole weekend the Miami Chronicle's Booby Trap is produced, written, and recorded by James Archer and Michael Fragamani. We'd like to thank the following people for their help and contributions in creating this episode. Dan Wool, Mark McCartney, Small Time Napoleons, Mr. Sonny Duval, Alex Padoon, Jazar, Liana Echeverry, and the team at the Apostrophe Podcast Company. But most of all, a very heartfelt thanks to you, our listeners.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.